We're going to be looking at one of those uh, moments, one of those uh, events in the life of Jesus, in the, in the ministry of Jesus, in the days he, he walked the earth, that if I was going to make a play, write a play, I would have to have this event. If I was going to put on the stage the life of Jesus, I would have to have this moment. We're going to be looking at Jesus when he is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. How can you not have this moment? Think about it. It's, it's, it's unique in Jesus' life where he is alone with Satan in the wilderness. It's a, it's a heavyweight bout. It's these two figures that have such an imprint on our understanding and in our reading of the New Testament, Jesus, God the Son, and the tempter, Satan, together in the wilderness. What a great scene that would be. But the significance of this event is, is more than just its dramatic attraction. You see, this moment of Jesus in the wilderness tells us so much about who Jesus is. And, and by extension, it tells us a great deal about who we are as his church. Those are going to be the two main questions that I want us to consider today. The two uh, sort of governing themes that I want us to look at. One, who is Jesus? We're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at that question. Who is Jesus? And two, what difference does this make? Why is this significant? So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Uh, You'll find this if you're using a pew Bible on page 957. Our text for today will be Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. I'm actually going to begin reading with Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, to sort of help set the context, to help gain some of the significance of our focus text. Our focus is 1 through 11 of chapter 4, but I'm going to begin reading at the baptism of Jesus on verse 13 of chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. The word of the Lord. I had us begin with the baptism. Because... In order to understand the significance of what is occurring in the wilderness, we need to set it in the, in the movement, in the push of Matthew. When, when Jesus went to be baptized by John, John recognized there's a disconnect, that the, the two don't meet. John has been baptizing sinners who are repenting. And here is Jesus, the one who has no sin. And, and John recognizes this disconnect and says, it is not I who should baptize you, you should baptize me. And Jesus' response is, is so critical for us today to understand the wilderness. Jesus says, it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Now this language of to fulfill all righteousness What Jesus is referring to is the great plan of God. To fulfill all righteousness is the great story, the great story of salvation of of God reconciling his people to him, of, of freeing the sinners, of bringing those who are enemy into his people. And and in throughout Matthew, this idea of fulfillment. This fulfillment of all righteousness has been to look at Jesus, to see Jesus through the lens of God's great act, of how he's been working through history. And Matthew gives us the language of Israel, the language of the people of God, the, the, their story, the story of these great figures as a lens to understand who Jesus is. We see this from the beginning. We see this in the genealogy of Matthew where Jesus' ancestors are, are listed, but in such a way to present Jesus in the great movements of the history of Israel. The language of Jesus' birth, very similar to some of the language we have about Moses. There were people, rulers, desiring to kill them both. Pharaoh wanted to kill the young Jews including Moses. Herod wanted to kill the young at Bethlehem because of Jesus, yet God intervenes for both. When Joseph, in a vision, takes 
his family to Egypt to escape, and it's now time for them to return. The, the Lord says to Joseph, those who were trying to kill Jesus have died. The language that God says to Moses when it's time for him to return and begin the exodus, God says to Moses, those who were trying to kill you have died. Even when uh, Matthew tells us about Jesus returning out of their time in Egypt back into the Holy Land, Matthew says it fulfills Hosea's uh, prophecy that out of Egypt I will call my son, which in Hosea is a reference to Israel coming out of Egypt. We, we see this happen over and over again in Matthew where we are to look at Jesus and his story and understand that all the great threads of the history of Israel, of God and his plan of salvation are culminating into a single moment in Jesus. Even, even the baptism, when Jesus comes out of the water and the heavens open and the voice of God is heard, and, and he, 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 he presents two statements. This is my son whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. You know, the first part of this statement, this is my son, is a coronation psalm, is, is what was said of the kings of Israel when they took their reign. Whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased comes from Isaiah. It is what is said about the servant who would suffer for his people. This is why I had us start at the baptism. Because you see, the wilderness moment is layered with the depth of the story of God reconciling his people. This is the lens for which we are understand it. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You know, even here you begin to see the story of Israel being recapitulated. Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness. They were tempted Jesus passed through the waters of the baptism, went into the wilderness. The Israelites were led by the pillar of fire. Jesus is led by the Spirit. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. That, that, that number's not accidental, friends. It's, it's not just a way of saying a long time, as if, if, as if Jesus had fasted 39 days and 39 nights, we would say, well, not bad, Jesus, but you didn't quite make it to 40, did you? You know, it's, it's, it's 40. 40 is significant. 40 is a number that's often associated with, with uh, perseverance and trials and, and troubles. Noah. The flood, 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah fasted 
40 days and 40 nights. Moses, when he was praying and receiving the Ten Commandments, 40 days and 40 nights he fasted. The Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. This number is not accidental. You begin to feel the setting of the moment. Jesus, led by the Spirit, will be tempted by the devil. Now, there's an important difference between testing and tempting. Testing has as its goal, as its intent, to, uh, to demonstrate the strength, the validity, the authenticity, and to show what might be lacking. When I give a test to my students at the college or at the seminary, that's what I'm doing. My, my desire is not to see them you know, flop on their face. I rejoice when they do well. Tempting has its goal to get someone to turn, to renounce that which is right for that which is ill. God doesn't tempt, but the devil does. And so this is the setting of this moment, this Jesus in the wilderness. And and I I love, by the way, the end of verse 2. It's like the greatest understatement in the history of earth. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I'm hungry when I miss my second morning snack. Right? He was hungry. This is the state he was in. The tempter, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The tempter, what is his temptation here? If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. In the Greek, there are different ways to construct an if-then statement, a conditional statement. There are different ways to put it together to convey different pieces of information. For example, here in verse 3, the way that it's structured in the Greek indicates that the if part, if you are the Son of God, is being presented as if assumed to be true by both parties. Doesn't mean both parties have to accept that it's true, but just for the sake of the argument, they assume that it's true. In other words, what Satan is doing here with this structure, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread with this temptation, is he's not challenging Jesus to prove he's the Son of God. That's not the temptation. The if part, if you are the Son of God, is assumed to be true for the sake of the argument. Almost carries the idea of sense. So so what Satan is doing is he's saying, okay, you're the Son of God. Since you're the Son of God, 
take advantage of that position, turn the stone to bread. You see the difference? It's not you think you're the son of God, prove it. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is Satan coming to Jesus and saying, I know you're hungry. You're the son of God. Fix it. Turn the stones into bread. He's tempting Jesus to take advantage of his position as the son of God. And and Jesus' response Jesus' response comes from Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8, 3. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want, I want to read to you Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 4. In fact, if you, if you want to turn there, it's on page 180 of your pew Bible. We're going to look at this 8, 1, 2, 3, so we can sort of hear the context that Jesus is drawing from. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord." You know, you might want to keep a, a, a marker there. There are a lot of extra kids in the sanctuary. Use one of their fingers if you need to. That will be suitable for me. But this is the, this is the context. Why does Jesus quote Deuteronomy 8.3? Uh, it, it's often been said, and, and this idea isn't wrong, so what I'm about to say, please don't misinterpret but it's often been said that, you know, to refute the devil, Jesus has to quote Scripture. The, the idea being, you know, if Scripture's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And yes, yes, surround ourselves with Scripture. But Jesus wasn't doing some little, like, massive word search to find something that he could use here. To respond to the devil. We get and very similar in John 4, the similar idea when Jesus says, not quoting scripture, he says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. So why here? Why, why doesn't Jesus simply say, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me? Why does he go to Deuteronomy 8? Because Jesus understands the moment. He understands what the tempter is doing. He understands that Satan is trying to get Jesus, as the Son of God, a position that's supposed to be one of obedience, to take advantage and exert his own way. Jesus understands that what is happening at this moment is akin to what happened to Israel in the wilderness. 
when their hunger was to demonstrate, were they willing to submit and trust the plan of God? Were they willing to allow God to feed them with the manna? And so when Jesus responds, when, when he says, you know, uh, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth, when he quotes Deuteronomy 8, he is responding to Satan by saying, I am going to trust and wait upon God. That's what I am going to do. I am not going to take advantage of position. Round two. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The scene changes. We were at the wilderness. And then, do you notice, the devil took him. And they went to the highest point of the tallest building in the high holy city of Jerusalem. I always see this happening sort of like Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, when, when Ebenezer Scrooge grabs the, the coat of the ghost of Christmas present and they zip you know, through the city. That's, I don't know why. It seems like that's what happens because they're, they're in the wilderness and then they're, boom, they're on top of the temple. Now, I understand sort of the draw of the first temptation. Jesus is hungry. Turn the stone into bread. The second temptation, you know, at, at first blush, seems a bit absurd. Okay, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, this is the same construction, right? Since you are the Son of God, do a header off the top of the building onto the paving stone. Right? It's, what? It seems like that would be an easy one to, to resist. But the strength of Satan's temptation is in the verse, Psalms 91, 11, 12, that he uses. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Since you are the Son of God, make it known to everyone. God says in the Psalms, he will protect you. God says in the Psalms that you won't even stub your toe. You know, if you follow this path, Jesus, there are going to be people that don't like you. The rulers are going to stand against you. There's, going, there's already been trouble with John the Baptist and what he's saying about you. You can bypass all of that. You're not going to fall. God can't let you fall. He's promised to protect you. 
Think about it, Jesus. The entire holy city looking. There you are standing on the top of the temple. And you jump. (gasps) But you're spared. There'll be no doubting who you are. You must be the son of God. That's the temptation. Jesus responds Again, pulling from the wilderness narrative. Again, pulling from Deuteronomy. This time, he responds from Deuteronomy 6, 16. We, we looked at this passage uh, with, with Godwin earlier this morning. If you want to uh, look at it, it's on page 178. Deuteronomy six sixteen. Do not test the Lord your God... As you did in Massa. So, what happened in Massa? Exodus 17. Listen along as I read. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sinai, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They kept at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt and make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Do not put your Lord, your God, to the test. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. He quotes it here because Satan is asking, is tempting, is luring Jesus to do the very sin that the Israelites did. Here were the Israelites camping where the Lord had directed them. Here were the Israelites who had seen God part the Red Sea, who had seen the great river Nile turn, and now they are grumbling about water, And they say, part of their argument to Moses is, if God is really with us, he better give us some water. We demand God to prove his faithfulness to us. They put a test in front of God. Jesus does not disobey as the Israelites did. Satan had tempted Jesus. Make God save you. And then you can show everyone 
who you are. The irony of this passage is that God has a plan that includes Jerusalem, that includes Jesus being seen, that includes Jesus being lifted up, that includes people looking at Jesus and saying, this is the Son of God, but it's not in some miraculous, magical, wondrous spectacle of a light descent. It's in the ignominy of the cross and the being lifted up on its beam. Round three. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. This movement's a little different. Scene changes. We've gone from wilderness, top of the temple, to now this sort of celestial lookout mountain. This, this mountain in which all the lands and their glory can be seen. But this time, Satan doesn't do the if-then temptation structure. He doesn't try to tempt Jesus to take advantage of his privileged position. This time, he offers an alternative. This time, the tempter lays before the son a different option. I promise this all can be yours. All you got to do is bend the knee. This scene, I think, is a perverse mirror of the story of Adam and Eve. Think about it. God, when he creates, he creates all the different kingdoms. He creates the kingdom of the sky and fills it with the birds. He creates the kingdom of the waters and fills it with the ocean. He creates the kingdom of the land and and fills it with everything that crawls. And then he creates man. And he makes him the ruler of it all. You are its custodian and its Lord. You are my viceroy. You represent me on my creation. You rule it all. Worship me and do not eat of that which is forbidden. There's a perverse mirror here where Satan says to Jesus, Look, I can give you all this. Just come to me. All it takes is a simple act of idolatry. Jesus responds again, quoting from Deuteronomy, again, bringing the moment back into the wilderness story of Israel. You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6.13. This was a reference to what the Israelites did. The great 
sin of Israel was while Moses was up on the mountain. The Israelites, out of fear, out of confusion, out of sin, made a golden calf and bent the knee. They chose an alternative, a different option. This is the same proposal being laid before Jesus. And again, unlike the Israelites, Jesus refuses to bend the knee to Satan, refuses to bow to the golden calf. In fact, he responds first with a command, away from me, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And I love this. Here was Satan who was presuming to be in the position to grant authority. Yet when Jesus says, away from me, he leaves. A defeated foe. You can't help but think of the end of the Gospel of Matthew, right before the Great Commission, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is who Jesus is. This is why this story is so significant. Because you see, Jesus changed the ending of a story that had been repeated through time. First, it was Adam. Adam, who was the firstborn, right? He was created. He was the first among us. He walked with God. He was giving dominion over everything. And then when the serpent tempted him with an alternative, when the serpent tempted him with, you could be gods, Adam and Eve chose the alternative and disobeyed. Israel, Israel is set apart. They will be a light to the nations. They will be a blessing to the nations. They are entrusted with the great oracles of God, with his law, with his teaching. And what do they do? They make a calf out of precious metal and worship it. And the greatest among Israel, her kings, the ones that are lifted up, that maybe there will be, the righteousness that God has intended, the greatest among them, disobey and fall and fail till eventually the judgment of God rolls forth and the nation of Israel is exiled. The same story repeated over and over and over again. Adam, Israel, the kings, Alternatives, alternatives, alternatives. Disobedience, disobedience, disobedience. And then there comes Jesus. And the story changes. He trusts God. He does not disobey. He does not choose the alternative. He is the obedient one. And that, that my friends, has made all the difference Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane on the eve knowing he is about to be tried, beaten, whipped, mocked, 
lifted up on a cross, knowing that he's about to feel the sin upon him and the wrath of God envelop him, knowing that he, he is moments away from yelling, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does he say in the garden? If it's possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. He is the obedient one. And that has made all the difference. It means, friends, that it's not my obedience. It's not my drive to do well. It's not what I offer that will be considered the righteousness of God. It is not what I present before the Lord that will satisfy the entry fee into new creation. It is his obedience. It is his righteousness. When, when the Lord looks upon me, when the days are ended on this planet and I stand before the Lord, he doesn't look and see, was Mark obedient? He looks and he says, did Mark trust in the obedient one. He sees his son's righteousness. This has been the plan of God. This is the fulfillment of all righteousness that Jesus does, to be the obedient one who stands and receives that which belongs to the disobedient. This is what Paul says. This is what in Romans 5, 18 through 19 Consequently, just as the result of one trespass, Adam, was condemnation for all men, so as the result of one act of righteousness, Jesus, was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many be made righteous. This makes all the difference. Every one of us, you, me, we have attempted to make stones into bread, to take advantage of position. We have attempted to jump off the temple and make God do something for us. We have demanded of God that he act on our behalf. And each one of us have knelt before the golden calf. I don't know what your idol is. You know, it's said that our, our idols are not found in our dreams, but in our nightmares. What are you most afraid of losing? Your time, your money, your career, your esteem, your reputation, your family, What are you most afraid of losing? Because there lies the greatest temptation of an idol that is raised above as an alternative to God. And we've all done it. I don't don't stand here as an example of obedience. I stand here as one of the disobedient. So glad that it is not my efforts that are contingent upon Righteousness and salvation. 
Do not be discouraged, church. Rejoice. Because he is the obedient one. And his spirit dwells in us. His obedience dwells in us. Obedience is possible for you and for me because his spirit is in our hearts. You know, I've noticed that disobedience for me never happens after of a long, patient deliberation. It's always in the instant and it's always in the moment where temptation grabs the opportunity. But when I pause, when I hold my gaze upon Christ, when I think about his obedience, then I can take that step and I can walk his walk. We never have to rationalize obedience. We always rationalize disobedience. Yeah, I know it's wrong, but you should have seen what he said to me. We never say, yeah, I know it's right, but I'm going to do it. Right? We do not rationalize following the Lord because it's natural. And when we disobey, when I dampen my devotion, when I hold my hand back instead of extending it, when I mute my confession, I hate it. You hate it. Because you know it's not his obedience that is being shown. And his obedience, and I'll end with this, is always, is always the path, the path of the beautiful surrender is always the better option. You see, God loves us and his intentions, his designs, he, he doesn't desire for us to fail. He is not laying before us things so that we may turn from him. His desire is to love and to keep us, to persevere, to sustain, to be with. Look at the end of our verse today. Verse 11. Then the devil left him. And angels came and attended him. This attending idea often carries the note of feeding. The first temptation. Make bread, Jesus. The second temptation. Make God give you angels, Jesus. The third temptation, do not trust God, Jesus. And what does he do? He trusts God and obeys. And the angels come and they give him food. It has made all the difference. Let us pray. Lord, Lord, thank you. Thank you that Satan is a defeated foe. Thank you that his, his designs 
his plans, his strength is impotent compared to your obedience and the power of your surrender to God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are God the Son and the Son of God, that you are fully divine, yet you humbled yourself and was obedient even to death, death on a cross. Thank you, Lord, that this bent world, this broken world that can do so much damage, Lord, it can take our health, it will take our lives, it can wreck relationships, it can strip marriages apart, it can damage father and son and mother and daughter. But in all of this, Lord, the bent world cannot take our soul. For you claimed us. You reconciled us, your people, in your obedience. You did what we could never do. Lord, I beg of you, let let your spirit fill this church let each of us walk, walk in the mercy and the grace of your obedience and in the courage of your obedience. Let us stand strong to follow your plan, to trust and wait upon you. Let us not seek our own agendas, demand our own privilege, expect you to do something for us. Lord, strip us of our idols. Thank you, my Lord. Thank you for being the obedient one. For that has made all the difference. It's in your name, the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.